you know, I had this idea in my head that I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And it took me way too long to realize that I was investing my time and my energy and my intellect into something that I should have realized was not going to work out. You know, when I thought about passing out, when I see blood. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And that mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community where you get access to the tools you need to create, grow, and protect your wealth. Just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your spot. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Michelle Rooker. Michelle, are you ready to join the mission I am ready to join the mission. <laughs> I'm excited to have you on. And let me introduce you to the audience. Michelle, strategist, speaker, and author Michelle Worker coined the term gray rhino as a call to take a fresh look at how we respond to obvious, probable, impactful risks. The metaphor and framework have shaped business and investment strategies and made headlines in more than 35 languages and 70 countries. Michelle founded the Chicago-based advisory firm Gray Rhino and Company and is a former media and think tank executive. Her four books include the influential global bestseller, The Gray Rhino, and the sequel, You Are What You Risk. Michelle, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this wonderful world. Well, well I'm obsessed with risk, obviously. <laughs> and my superpower is really connecting things from different angles, showing how they all come together and create something that's, that's bigger than the sum of the parts. I've been called an economist, historian, sociologist, anthropologist, a whole bunch of other Things and none of them are completely not true, but none of them is completely true either. Is that I just can't look at something just from one angle. I need all of the angles because I feel like you get a much clearer picture when you bring those together. Mm. And gosh darn it, you're just a nice person too. In <laughs> fact, we were introduced by Chris Stout, who is a mutual friend. Chris was on the podcast episode 573. And it just happened to be that you were in Bangkok for a period of time. And so it was a wonderful time that we had together where we had a dinner with my mom on the river at the Shangri-La Hotel. It was fantastic. And it was great getting to know you. And then we had that nice walk around, looking around the streets of Bangkok. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. I did too. And, you know, the funny thing is, I remember the river was at record highs. And I was in Europe about a month later in Belgium and looking at the rivers were at record lows. And <laughs> that contrast really struck me, but I had the best time. And I have to say, Thai iced tea ice cream is my new obsession. <laughs> I've got to figure out some place <laughs> that makes it here in Chicago because it's awesome. Yeah. And that layout they have at the Shangri-La there is amazing buffet and they do all of their homemade ice cream. So yeah, it's amazing. So that was a great time. I know my mom enjoyed it. She had some good wine and good ice cream. As I was telling you before we turned on the recorder is that 
All mom needs is some good ice cream, some good wine, and nowadays, good sourdough bread. <laughs> she's awesome. And she's got yeah, and, and a good son. <laughs> yeah, I, I do my best. I wanted to ask a question. You know, I, I read through The Gray Rhino and, and really enjoyed it. But one of the things I've been trying to reconcile, and I want your help in doing this, is that I was taught by this man, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, when I was a young guy and I went to his seminars and he talked to me about something that made a lot of sense, which was like a production process. And let's just say in my case, for my coffee business, we fill bags of coffee, bags with coffee to let's say a hundred grams. And we track that and measure that. And we can see that, let's just imagine that the power goes out, boom okay, there's a bag 50% full now, and then we have to throw it out or whatever happens, let's say. Or, or, you know, let's say we have another event where three people on our team were sick. It's a very rare event. And therefore, we just couldn't hit the targets. And so he called those special special outcomes or special occurrences or special causes. And then and then he talked about how majority of what you're seeing coming out of a production process is, yeah, one or two is going to be over a hundred grams. One or two is going to be under of these bags as they're coming out of this process. But he did talk about, you know, at what point do you say, okay, two bags coming out underweight, is that a worry or is it three or is it four? Or is it five? Well, once it gets to, let's say six, maybe that is something that is, you know, telling us something. So I wanted to think about how you think about gray rhino coming from kind of, let's say an industrial engineering perspective. And how do I not overreact to all the different outcomes that are coming out of this? And how do I not underreact to the important, you know, gray rhinos that are coming out of this system? I've been thinking about this question since we met, you know, in Bangkok. Yeah, for a couple months already. You know, it's, it's a great question. And I've gotten a version of it from some of the workshops that I've done. One guy asked, you know, what if, you know, it seems like it's going to happen and then it doesn't. And he actually suggested we might call it a limping hippo, <laughs> <laughs> sort of like a, a fake threat. And it's, it's complicated because with gray rhinos, you know, something big is coming at you. You know that if you don't do something about it, it's going to be a problem, but the outcome's not certain because it depends on how you respond to it. Mm. And what people love to do is identify risks and you know, make all these top risks lists. For a while, I was I was pulling some of them together and, and creating a composite. And I stopped doing it because every year there are more and more and more and more. And finally, I said, this is, this is, <laughs> this is an exercise in futility. But so in an industrial situation, you know that there are certain things that are going to crop up from time to time. And what you really want to do is, once you've made that list, look at your responses and how well equipped you are. Mm. And you know how far off and how many bags that are off the weight depends on you know who your customers are, depends on what inspections, things like that. I mean, for your customers, mm. a little bit over is probably what they would prefer. They're probably not going to check. And for you, if you get too many of them that are too much over, then obviously you're you're losing some money on that. And then with the mm. with the personnel problem, I think that, that that's a problem that a lot of businesses have really wrestled with the last couple of years for the obvious reason. Mm. And the answer to that is is really redundancy. It's allowing a little more slack in the system. 
for the past couple of decades, people have become so used to, you know, just in time and the squeezing the most out of everybody. And we've learned that if you are just keeping the minimum amount of inventory and there's a big demand, you're going to lose. So there's a risk of too much and too little. The risk really has two sides to it. And similarly with the staff, we've also learned that people are more productive when they're not overworked. So if you can come up with a situation where you've got a little bit more flexibility in your staffing, where everybody's, you don't assume that everybody is pushed to the edge because they're going to be quote unquote more productive. You're, they're actually not going to be more productive. A lot of them are just going to be going through the, the motions. So make sure that workers are not overstretched and then make sure that you've got enough that they can come in as reserves. Right. So each each one of those little possible threats is something that you can come up with a response to. But it's interesting if you focus so much on the little tiny things mm. all around you and all the all the risks, you can just crumble because it's just too much. Right. So a lot of gray rhino theory is really about prioritizing things, the things that are running fastest at you, the things that are closest with the biggest impact and the things that you've got the power to do something about, to sort of turn their path instead of just getting out of the way. The other thing that I was thinking about this morning was how, when I was in university, let's say go back to 1989, when I graduated from Cal State Long Beach. And uh, I remember getting into debates with people and in university about government debt and how, and I remember they had the commission, uh, I forgot who was the leader of the commission now, Simpson, but there was a congressional commission to say that, you know, government debt got out of control. And I felt like that was a gray rhino coming, running right at us. Like, you know, if you just keep running a country into debt, the inevitability of, you know, problems is just growing. Well, what a fool I was, because here we are with 30, to what, $31 trillion in debt and everything's okay. And how do you, you know, and so if I was thinking back then, I may have been saying gray rhino, gray rhino coming, you know, this is big, but the outcome didn't turn out as I expected for whatever reasons, you know, there's a lot of technical things about it, but I'm just curious, like when I look back, was I a fool? Was I being misled? Was I overreacting? And how do I put that in the framework of how you think about things? So again, it goes back to the response. And, you know, there have been there have been some bumps along the road, certainly when, you know, when both parties in the US Congress couldn't agree on raising the debt ceiling. And, you know, every time they they come to blows, you see stocks fall and and you know, you there are times when it's pushed interest rates up. And so there there have been certain consequences. And there are two ways that policymakers can respond and investors in return. And that is to, you know, to find a way to clean up the problem by mm-hmm. you know, government spending being much more efficient and contributing to more productivity. And that includes not what we might typically think of as government spending as you know, treasury spending, but also what the Fed is doing, even though the Fed is supposedly independent from the treasury, the, you know, boosting up their balance sheet the way they have has been pumping money into lots of parts of the economy that aren't 
necessarily the most productive. In fact, I'd say the opposite. Mm. And so what we've seen at different stages is people kicking the can down the road. And I think, and a lot of people in the markets are finally saying this, is that, what is it? The chickens are coming home to roost. To roost, yep. And so you're seeing interest rates going up again, and that's going to start pushing government debts and zombie companies and all sorts of things into very difficult positions. And, you know, the question of too much debt is what it really is about is, how much more you're paying in interest than the mm. economy is growing. So if you are taking on debt and it's going to productive things that grow the economy even more than whatever the interest rate is, then you know over time, the debt is going to fall and things are going to be fine. You can carry it much more easily. When the opposite is true, which is I think what a lot of us are looking at now, it becomes very, very challenging because you've got a bunch of different gray rhinos running right at each other, you know, bang. <laughs> so it may, makes me think maybe, okay, I had a foresight to look 30 years in the future, maybe. <laughs> well, I, well, we're looking at it along, along the way. And, you know, it's funny, people are really obsessed with making risks lists, as I said, but mm. also with predictions. And the sort of game is you predict something and if it doesn't happen, you know, because people recognized it and did the right thing, people will say, ah, 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 you're a Cassandra, boohoo on you. It never came to happen. Even if that event never came about. And the reason is because people did something to get it mm -hmm. out of the way. So people aren't paying enough attention to that, that sort of exchange, that feedback mechanism. And we don't praise people enough when they prevent a disaster from happening. And we do often praise them if they're just kicking it down the road. <laughs> and so all of the sort of reward and incentive systems are quite off. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we get into the big question of the podcast, maybe you could just tell the listeners what it is that they would get when they go and read, you are what you risk. We'll have links to that in the show notes and everything. But I just was curious if you could summarize why they should read it and what they're going to get from it. Well, it's really an extension of the gray rhino. The gray rhino is about when you see a big, scary thing coming at you, are you one of the people who deals with it or not? And what makes the difference? And when I thought about that, it seemed like the story was very different at different stages of when these crises were unfolding. Some people would be denying, some people would be kind of muddling, saying, oh, yeah, there's a problem, but here's a thousand reasons why we can't deal with it. Some of them might actually be diagnosing, okay, what does it take to fix it? Who's going to do it? Are there solutions? How do we get there? Some of them are creating a sense of urgency. Some of them wait until there's just a sense of panic. And then you've got the, the action and also the follow-up, because it's not just to act because you have to make sure that what you're doing is doing what you want. And so that's how the gray rhino unfolds. It's really mm -hmm. focused on the events and the dynamics of the event themselves. And you are what you risk flips it. And it looks at the people who are responding to the risks, the citizens, the organizations, the policymakers, the societies. And I realized just how many things go into why you respond the way you do. You know, why there's some people who've, who've got, you know, a personality and a background and habits that 
make it more likely that they're going to respond to the gray rhino. And there are other people who don't. So these three things come together in what I call a risk fingerprint. And if you look at the metaphor of a real fingerprint, you know, I just came back Mm. to the US from Seoul last week and put my fingers on the the biometric uh, little little glass things in the in the immigration that took an imprint of my finger and the imprint said okay this is this is Michelle this is who this is it's a unique identifier mm. and i'm interested in what what created that so if you look at your finger there's really three parts to your fingerprint there's the whorls and the arches and the loops they're all genetically determined. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you can't change that part of it. And that's like your innate personality, or if you're a business, like, you know, your, your mission, or as a country, a lot of the, the values that you have. So the second part is think about you cut your finger with a knife. That's going to leave a scar, which indelibly changes the risk fingerprint. Mm-hmm. And in real life, you think about, say you're cooking and you cut your finger with a knife and you know it bleeds, you stick a Band-Aid on, or maybe you even have to go to the emergency room and get stitches. Some people will combine that experience with their innate personality and say, oh, I did it. It was no big deal. I'm going to be a sushi chef. Mm. And other people will say, oh, that was horrible. Don't give me anything more dangerous than a sport. I want a plastic sport. Mm. So those two are things that you don't have a lot of control over that, you know, experiences that happen to you from the outside, or, you know, if you take a risk and it goes well, or it doesn't through sheer luck, not from what you went and put into it. The third part is what you can change. So people who do a lot of manual labor have calluses. So their fingerprint is going to be much less distinct. Uh, and also people who use too much shea butter. <laughs> a little, mm. You know, it'd be nice and soft, but it'd or be really- guitar really players. Bait, guitar players. Exactly. And that's that the environment, the, the habits, the people around you, and above all, the self-awareness. Mm. And that's what really you are, what your risk is about. It's the self-awareness of what you bring to those gray rhino events and how you can optimize your processes, your habits, your environment, the people around you, you know, what you decide to have for lunch to make smarter decisions when you are taking risks. So powerful. And, you know, I think the takeaway for all of us, you know, is that when we understand ourselves and what's driving us, we make better decisions. And one of the funny things, Michelle, about my mother coming to to Thailand is that all of my life, I never really ate like, I don't know, clams or shellfish so much. I do eat fish and I do eat shrimp and stuff, but I never really ate much shellfish. And then when my mom came, we were just talking one day and we were talking about how my dad and my two sisters got hepatitis from shellfish. And we were living in uh, Connecticut at the time. And I was a, you know, a very young kid, maybe, I don't know, five, six years old or whatever that was. And they were quarantined in their rooms and mom had to prepare everything, but we couldn't have contact with them or whatever. And I realized like, okay, that was that knife cut on the finger that you described. Like that was something that happened in my life that really shaped the way I looked at something and I didn't even know. I didn't even remember any of that until we had this discussion. And then you're like, oh man, you really are shaped by your experiences unless you become aware of them and you decide, okay, I'm going to change the way I think about this. And 
you know, that's one of the things that I think about when you were just explaining that. It's true. And you can, you know, you can do things. You can, you know, only go to the super high end restaurants. I'm in favor of that. <laughs> or, you know, even the low end ones where you know the chef real well and you and you trust them. Yep. You know, you can do things that you know will make you more comfortable. And that's true of any risk, whether mm. it's it's investing or careers. People have different things that make them comfortable. One of the biggest things is knowledge. You know, read everything you can about Pepsi and and right, and right. seafood and things like that. You know, bring a surgeon to dinner with you or a doctor to dinner and have an EpiPen or whatever. You can create an environment that creates a sort of like a safety net and a backdrop, which also helps. Mm. And it's different for different people. There's also people who just go barreling into things and don't look twice. They've got a different set of things. They don't need to be more comfortable with doing stuff. You know, they need people to encourage them to take a deep breath. You know, when I was writing You Are at Your Risk, I, I put out a query on, on Facebook to my friends. I said, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And one of my college friends <laughs> sends me a note. He says, seriously, you're asking me? And, you know, he's, you know, we remember him going and doing all sorts of, you know, adventure climbing and, you know, falling off of cliffs and, you know, suing really powerful people and, and doing all of these sorts of things. And, you know, his nickname was Random Terror in college because he just lived and it was great. But, you know, sometimes you need someone to pull you back. And then some people are more shrinking violets and they need people to pull them forward. Mm -hmm. And it depends on different parts of your life. For example, I mean, a lot of my friends and my dad always says, oh, I could never do what you do. I could never be an entrepreneur. That seems so risky. And I'm like, you know, having four kids on a teacher's salary, I could never do that. Mm -hmm. But I also look at, you know, say jaywalking. I'm right. like, I, I hate jaywalking unless the street's really empty. Right. And so there'll be oftentimes when there'll be friends who, who want to go ahead and jaywalk and I'm, I'm holding back. <laughs> like, I'm really scared. Like you guys go on either side. So if the car's coming, they'll hit you first instead of me. So there are different things in your life. You know, you have different risk preferences for different types of risk, you know, health, mm. safety, finance, career, ethics, relationships, all, all around. It's not yeah. the same throughout your life. Yeah. Well, We'll have links to that in the show notes, so make sure you check it out. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, you know, I was trying to come up with a good financial thing and just, just couldn't. And I went all the way back to my first semester of college. Now, when I was a kid, I would see a prick of blood and pass out cold. First time it happened, I was like five years old and several times after that. And, you know, that should have been an indicator. But at the time, the things that you were supposed to do if you were smart and ambitious and motivated, where you'd be a doctor, a lawyer, or you know, an engineer, or I think at the other time, marketing, I don't know, well, it was the 80s. That so was, you know, a big thing when I was in high school. I think we were around at the same time. Yep. And I decided I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I'd done a summer as a candy striper, a volunteer at the, the local veterans hospital, mm -hmm. which was mainly a psychiatric hospital. So I was the assistant to a psychologist there and I would go with him on rounds and sometimes patients would come in and I would be there. And in hindsight, I'm a little doubtful about the ethics of it because the whole idea was like, you know, if there's a nice, pretty young 
high school girl, then maybe the patients are going to be calmer. It didn't work out that way. Sometimes I remember once there's a patient who threw a chair across the room at me, but I was really interested in psychology and I could also see this hierarchy. It's like, you know, you have the social workers who got kicked around and then you have the psychologists who didn't get kicked around as much. Then you have the psychiatrists at the top. And I'm like, okay, doctor, psychiatry, these interests all kind of come together. So I was going to go to college and be a pre-med and psychology and French major. And I got there and I just, I hated the psychology classes. And then as far as pre-med, I was taking a chemistry lab course where it was all Murphy's law. Everything that could go wrong did. There was one, the gravimetric chloride experience where my crucible busted out the bottom and my sample was all over the flask. And I got 35 out of 180 possible points and I just hated it. And I hated the chemistry and I hated, but you know, I had this idea in my head that I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And it took me way too long to realize that I was investing my time and my energy and my intellect into something that I should have realized was not going to work out. <laughs> you know, when I thought about bleeding, you know, when I see you know, about passing out, when I see blood, but I, I figured, oh, doctors just get over that. I remember being in the, in the freshman psychology lab, it was a big auditorium class. And there was a, a scene on film with this guy. It was about you know, mind over body, this guy in India taking a, a bicycle spoke and putting it through one cheek and it coming out the other cheek. And I fell right down on the floor. I passed out in so many scary movies. I can't even begin to tell you. So that alone should have told me <laughs> maybe being a pre-med major was not the best idea. You know, eventually I thought better about it, became a policy studies major and moved on. But you know, I look back at that. A lot of young people ask me to mentor them. I talk mm. about that. I talk about really understanding what you want to do right? and weighing that against other people's expectations. right? And for me, it's actually very interesting. There's a lot of psychology in both You Are What You Risk and The Great Rhino. So I've been able to come back around to that part that I was really interested in. And the other thing that happened was I spent the summer in Europe when I was, uh, I was 16 when I graduated. Actually, I was almost 16 when I graduated high school. So I mm. spent, spent a month in Germany on an exchange program and a month in Belgium with family. And I came back and I was like, oh, I love to travel and I'm good at languages. And yet I was talking about this career in, you know, the pre-med and then medical school and the residency and the, that was not going to compute either. But mm. I had this idea in my head about what I was supposed to do. And throughout the rest of my life, it took many more experiences of investing my time and energy and emotions into other people's expectations or into what I thought was the safest and least risky path and not realizing that I was just putting myself in the path of a giant rhino. <laughs> Charging yeah. at you. And how would you at me. Yeah, how would you summarize the lessons that you learned from this? I think it goes down actually to self-awareness, which is mm. something I, I talk about all the time now when it comes to risk, but really understand how to how to recognize the warning signals if you're if you're not happy. And you know, this it took several times to relearn this lesson. I remember finishing graduate school. 
And I was working at Dow Jones writing about emerging markets debt trading. And I was trying to write my first book. And I had this relationship that was in its final stages and a you know, very sort of, you know, high maintenance boyfriend and, and all of this. And I was commuting from the Upper West Side of Manhattan to Jersey City. It was all of this stuff. And I look back, how are you doing that and not collapsing? Yeah. Which is now totally obvious to me. But there was one day where I just, I didn't cry for 10 years. You know, after a, a close friend was murdered, I just like, after that, I just didn't cry. I started crying and had no idea why. Mm. And looking back, it's it's completely obvious. But, you know, when your body is sending you signals, when you're tired, when you're just not feeling like yourself, that's a really great signal that something is wrong. Or when you're working 14-hour days because you're trying to avoid other parts of your life, that's a signal that something is wrong. And so the lesson's really... Be aware of what you're giving to the world, what sustains you. And I think those two are inseparable. It took me too long to figure that out. And it's, you know, be aware of the signals that something is not right. When your friends are telling you, hello, you know, (laughs) dump that significant other. Gee, that job is so stressful. Why don't you do something else? You know, just not listening. And it just took, you know, it took health scares and all sorts of things throughout my life to finally put myself first and to realize that by doing that, by saying, okay, I'm scheduling time today for a walk in the park along Lake Michigan with my super cute pit bull. That is what's going to give me the energy that I need to be creative, to analyze things, to pull together all of these different pieces of information and to help other people to do a better job of dealing with risk in the world. Mm. Maybe I'll, I'll summarize a few things I took away. You know, one of the things that uh, there's lots of parallels in our lives. I mean, one of the things is I went into university thinking I was going to study psychology and I was just so unimpressed. And I like, there was this textbook and there was a teacher up there reading and I was like, this just doesn't feel right. And that I, and what I wrote down while you were talking is, you know, what you find out by doing a lot of different things is what you don't like. And it's, it's hard to determine what you do like. I mean, there's a million different things you could do out there and it takes us time to figure out. So I think the lesson that I take from what you said is when you have awareness, you can more quickly identify, Hey, this isn't for me. And I think that's a great lesson for those people who are listening and in that situation where they are trying to do what they think is the right thing and it doesn't feel right, but you know, let's try. Well, you know, trying is part of growing up and learning, but eventually you'll identify the things that you don't like. And also I I always say, don't wait to find a thing that you do like, because that may or may not be right there in front of you. But if you find what you don't like, use that as an impetus to move you to the next thing. The next thing I thought about was I also, I had a, a pretty, pretty awful relationship. My first relationship, which as someone said, you know, what do you see in this woman? And I said, she has the one thing that just makes me, you know, just love her. And, you know, and they were like, well, what's that? I said, she likes me. Cause I didn't, I couldn't even imagine that a woman would even, you know, be interested in me at when I was that, you know, when I was younger. But any, anyways, we lived in Oakland. She was going to Berkeley. I was barely surviving, you know, 
And then we broke up and I remember just doing a lot of work. I had three different jobs going and I had to stay in university. So I was going to Laney College there in Oakland and trying to keep up credit so I didn't have to pay back my student loans. And six months of that and a friend of mine came to pick me up and I was going to move down to Los Angeles and we packed up everything and got in this U-Haul behind the car. And then as we drove out of Oakland, I just started sobbing, you know, and you just realized like the crap that I was going through and how I was holding it together by just keeping so busy that I wasn't willing or able to really deal with it. And, you know, and then it all busted loose. So for those people that are in a situation where it is really painful right now where you're at, you know, it may be time to make that move. And when you make that move, you are going to have a higher level of awareness. And when that awareness comes, it also can come with a flood of tears. So those are some of the things that I take away from your story. Anything you would add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the thing about when I just started crying for no reason, that's for quote unquote, no reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after graduate school, I did the sensible thing and I found a cognitive behavioral therapist who could focus on stress management. And she had me do this exercise that I still recommend to people. And she said, in the morning, write down how stressed you are. At lunch, write down how stressed you are and what has happened that makes you more or less stress and what you've done about it. And do the same thing at the end of the day Mm. and do that every day. And I found that just the act of keeping track of that made me feel like I had more control over the situation. Mm. And eventually I I figured it out and got rid of the boyfriend and, you know, eventually went to a different job and eventually, you know, dumped all the jobs. But it's, it's really true with risk, actually, when you're looking at a situation in front of you, the very act of analyzing that risk and possible responses and what makes you comfortable or not gives you an increased sense of control And when psychologists look at risk perceptions, the more control you feel you have over a situation and the more knowledge you feel you have over it, the less risky and the less scary something seems to you. So when people talk about something being, you know, riskier than something else, I always stop them. I say, you know, risk is like a room full of funhouse mirrors. You change a little thing and it looks totally different. It's like, you know, Schrodinger's cat or (laughs) quantum physics is the very act of observing changes the nature of the situation. And that's what my therapist had me doing. So be aware and observe. So let's think about a young man or woman right now in a somewhat similar situation where they're, they're slogging along in this thing that they're doing. And based on what you learned from this story that you've told us and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? To start out and identify the stresses, identify the feelings, identify what, what triggers those feelings and identify what makes you feel better or Mm. more comfortable. You know, who are the kinds of people who make you feel better? And for me, it's interesting actually, because I've my closest friends tend to be very supportive. And if I'm feeling down, they try to build me back yeah. up. But there are some friends I have who similarly have this sense of always, it's it's not enough. 
And I can talk to them. And when I say I'm really struggling with this thing, they'll talk that through with me mm. instead of just trying to, I mean, they'll add some, you know, some, right. some supportive stuff in there. But for me, the talking through what the problem is, what I'm doing, what else I could do, that helps me. I need that. I mean, I also need the support from my wonderful, wonderful friends. I'm so lucky. But that's necessary, but not sufficient. I need the person who can be help me be self-critical and also to figure out a way out of things. Great. And what's a resource you'd recommend for our listeners? Well, there's a bunch of this up on my website, thegrayrhino.com. It's actually got two parts. There's a, a blog called The Horn that talks about some of these global things going on and how to respond. But there's another blog called My Gray Rhino, which includes some of my thoughts about behavioral responses to risk, but also some guest posters, some friends who work on, on things. I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn. I love connecting with people. I have a newsletter that I'm always meaning to update more often than I do there. But uh, <laughs> if you come on LinkedIn and ping, say, hey, when's the next newsletter? That would be super helpful for, for me. But yeah, LinkedIn and thegrayrhino.com. It's the gray rhino with an A, but with an E will also get you there. Fantastic. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. So last question, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I'm rearranging my life to not have to say yes as often to getting on planes. And I'm really got, glad I got on that plane to Bangkok because I, I met you in person and I just got back from Seoul and I had a really great trip to Europe in October. I was able to say goodbye to my great aunt who's getting ready to leave us. And it was really mm. good, I think, for my cousins that I was there. She was, the, you know, they were the people I stayed with when I was 16 and it really set the course of my life. Those are all great trips, but I'm trying to rearrange my life so that I'm doing a lot more focused on Chicago and that I reduce the number of plane trips, the number of carbon emissions and mm. the toll on my health from all of that travel. Cause it's, uh, it's not easy. So more walks with that cute pit bull pup. Billy Billy. Oh, yeah. Billy Billy. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet become a gone, join, a become a better investor community, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your spot. As we conclude, Michelle, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? You know, the worst thing, the worst mistakes that you made, as Thomas and Edison says, are basically things that you learned didn't work and they're going to get you to where you want to go. So don't beat yourself up for them. But while you're in them, just be aware earlier so that you can get out earlier and you can learn that lesson faster and get where you want to go faster. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission. In fact, a risk expert. And what is our mission? To help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.